You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 98. This week, we move on to what was sort of the second big attack on the Somme, or the second big British effort anyway, which would take place on the 14th of July. While not as big as the first attack on the first, it would sort of set the template for later actions, where there would be a few weeks of lower intensity fighting, with generally small and obtainable tactical objectives, followed by a larger attack on a larger front, with deeper and more impactful objectives. This latter type would be the type of attack on July the 14th, and while it would not be a complete success for the attackers, it would be a far cry from the earlier disasters. This would also mark the first appearance of the cavalry on the Western Front in quite a while. If my memory serves me correctly, it would be the first time that they would participate in an attack in any meaningful way since way back in 1914, before the line settled down. On the 14th, they would play an important but not hugely impactful role in the fighting. Another group that would make their first appearance in our Western Front narrative will be the Australians. They would not yet be attacking on the Somme itself, but they would take part in a complementary attack to the north that would get to the name Battle of Fromel. It would not go well for them at all, and it would start a long legacy of the Australians and all the Commonwealth troops sort of feeling like the British weren't really helping them out much. When the planning got started for the 14th attacks, which would come to be known as the Battle of Byzantine Ridge, which is also a name I probably won't use very much, they would involve some disagreements between Rawlinson and Haig. These disagreements had their roots in the fact that in many places along the front where the attack would be launched, there were insanely wide spaces between the lines, upward of 1,500 yards. This presented a problem to any kind of traditional attack, and I think Haig had just sort of assumed that Rawlinson would do something to move the lines closer together before this attack took place, Something can have been done and accomplished in small attacks that probably would have been successful, since they would not have involved actually taking any German trenches. However, Rawlinson didn't do any of these things, because he had another plan up his sleeve. He wanted to launch his attack at night. The goal of this attack would be to move the men forward, starting right when it got dark. 
they would follow marker tapes that would tell them how far away they were from the German lines. This would allow the British to be in position to launch their attack as soon as the barest bit of light came into the sky. The hope was that this, plus a very short hurricane bombardment right before the troops attacked, would catch the Germans off guard and give the British troops that extra boost, that extra chance to succeed. Haig was not convinced that this was the right move, and his objections came from the fact that he did not believe that the men under his command were capable of executing a night attack. These were the words that he would use to describe why not. Quote, Our troops are not highly trained and disciplined, nor are many of the staff experienced in such work. And to move two divisions in the dark over such a distance, then form them up and deliver an attack in good order and in the right direction at dawn, as proposed, would hardly be considered possible, even in a peace maneuver. There is some validity to this line of reasoning, because there had been other night attacks attempted earlier in the war. The problem with these previous attempts is that they had almost always been discovered before they were launched, due to either noise or just bad luck. In those instances, the attacks had serious problems because the whole idea of a night attack, where you are pushing men out into exposed positions right by the enemy, is that you depend on stealth to make up for other shortcomings, like the very short final round of bombardment, and the slight disorganization of your troops, which is inevitable in any nighttime situation. Haig was concerned that if the men were seen, they would be massacred. However, Rawlinson slowly but surely won him over to his idea. Not that there was any real choice once the date for the attack was planned and the lines were still so far apart. For their attack, the British would be arranging four divisions to go forward in the attack, with a division on either side of the main effort doing some supporting, sort of distracting stuff. They would also have the 2nd Indian Cavalry Division ready to follow up any successes with attacks of their own. The men were arranged on a length of front that was much smaller than the first attacks. However, the artillery support available did not shrink as much as the front did. This meant that around two-thirds of the artillery support that had been used was now being concentrated on an area of the front that was a small fraction of what it had been. This would allow for the artillery to reach a much higher concentration, which would greatly assist in the attack. This artillery would fire for three days, during doing the standard preparation fire for an attack by concentrating on the wire and then the German positions and then the supporting positions behind the first line, all standard stuff. This would be at a relatively low intensity until just the final five minutes before the attack started at which point it would quickly escalate to maximum possible speed and intensity. The hope was that this quick hurricane bombardment would give the benefits of having that three days of firing, but also not give the Germans a ton of time to realize when the final attack would be launched. They wouldn't have hours of jump fire to bring up reinforcements right behind uh, where the artillery was firing. The British were still not going to focus much time on counter-battery fire, which would hurt the long-term goals of the attack, but it would not greatly affect the first effort. The goal of surprising the Germans would work when the time came, and in fact the attacks on the 14th came as an almost complete surprise to the Germans, 
They had been dealing with all those small localized attacks that we discussed last episode, and some artillery firing at some point in the front was not unheard of. It was basically happening constantly. So they sort of expected a smaller attack, nothing on the scale of the effort that was coming their way. This provided them with two handicaps. The obvious one was just not knowing it was going to happen. But then there was also the fact that since they didn't know the extent of what was happening, once it became apparent that it was not just another small attack, they weren't really sure what they were reacting to. They weren't sure if they should react to a much larger British attack, in which case they should keep their reserves to them until they found the point of greatest effort or, you know, point of greatest concern, or if they should rush all their troops to the area right then because this is all that was happening. They didn't know, so they sort of just couldn't make a good decision. During the hours before the attack was launched, three distinct groups of British soldiers made their way forward. The first group was a scouting and screening force, heavily armed with grenades and Lewis guns. Their goal was to make sure that they drove back any German sentries and kept the groups behind them safe from any German interference. The second group was very small parties of men who were assigned the job of placing marker tapes on the ground to both direct the last group forward and to also tell them when they were within 500 yards of the German front line. The final group, and by far the largest, was the actual assault units, and they moved up last following the path set by the others. They advanced slowly at a walk until they reached that point 500 yards from the German trenches that had been marked out for them. At that point, they would then slow way, way down and move forward extremely carefully so they could get as close to the German front lines as possible. They would end up just 50 yards from the German front line, sometimes even closer. Once they were in this position, they simply had to wait for the attack to start. At five minutes before kickoff, the artillery began their hurricane bombardment, and here is Major Neil Fraser Tyler of the Royal Field Artillery to give his perspective. The world broke into gunfire. It was a stupendous spectacle. The darkness lit up by thousands of gun flashes, the flicker of countless bursting shells along the northern skyline, followed by a few minutes later a succession of frantic SOS rockets and the glare of burning hum and munition dumps. At the front, the men used the cover of the barrage to get even closer to the German lines. Then as soon as the fire lifted to the next set of targets, the men were off to the races. The Germans, sent into cover by the massed British artillery, found that by the time they got back and manned the defenses, the British were already on top of them. In this instance, the British had almost without exception won that critical race to the parapet. They were helped by the fact that the creeping barrage was actually working as intended this time. It was lifting in much smaller jumps, just 50 yards at a time, and it was also making those lifts slower, which gave the infantry much more safety in their assault on the first set of positions. They had a kind of steel shield in front of them, keeping the Germans in the second and third trenches from properly helping the first. This was how the creeping barrage was supposed to work all along. One of the soldiers on the receiving end of the attack was Reserve Lieutenant Borelli. He discusses the artillery fire and then what happened when the British came forward. He discusses the artillery fire and then what happened when the British came forward. During the night of 13th, 14th July, 
the enemy increased his fire to previously unknown intensity, eased up between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m., and then around 3.30 opened a terrible drum fire once again. I ordered immediate readiness, and everyone lay in waiting in the entrances to the dugouts. Just before 4 a.m., I realized that the enemy was lifting his fire more to the rear. The sentry fired a flare, and the same second bawled, Get out! Here come the British! Everyone took up position in the shell craters. The enemy had advanced to within 20 to 30 meters of our position. They were surprised by the sudden burst of machine gun fire, and our infantry made use of the opportunity to throw hand grenades into the shell holes to our front. All three machine guns were ready to fire, and by the light of the illuminating rockets, we could observe their extraordinary effect. The enemy assaulted in about six waves. These were not dressed lines of infantry, rather they were concentrated groups of soldiers. End quote. Borelli's unit was actually one of the more successful German units in the first trenches. All along the front, the British had really good success, thanks mostly to the artillery and the fact that the Germans were just totally overmanned. There were only about four battalions facing the British attack of four divisions. In many sectors, this resulted in almost no real resistance when the British hit the first line. Even by the time they reached the second line, there was only scattered German resistance. All that was left of the first two lines were some scattered pockets of German units, holding out, and they had to be dealt with, but they were no serious problem. After the first two trenches, the British started running into some obstacles, though. These generally took the form of villages or other geographical features that gave the German defenders a good anchor for their defense. Some examples of these were the village of Longval, Devil Wood, and the positions around the Waterloo Farm. Around these, the German defense found itself finally able to regain some of their composure, and they found a way to hold their ground. This meant that it was time for the Germans to start to try and launch some counterattacks, you know, as the Germans do. Here is Reserve Lieutenant Hardinger of the Bavarian Infantry Regiment 16, with his account of what happened when his unit was ordered to go forward in one of these attacks. Quote, putting on a waist belt festooned with stick grenades and taking volunteers with me, I arrived on the right flank, where the courageous defenders had already gained a breathing space. They had already shot down more than half a dozen grenade throwers of the British Highland Battalion, absolutely first-class human material, and they were continuing to fire at the enemy, who were cutting the obstacle in front of the position, and also those who were advancing in dense masses on Longval. All along the front, small units found themselves either constantly attacking back and forth as the attacks devolved into countless small unit actions. Here again, the officers at the front, more often than not just young lieutenants who weren't even commanding their units an hour before, found themselves completely in charge of what was happening with little in the way of support or information. They were required to figure out what they were doing, what was needed of both themselves and their units, and then attempt to execute them in the vacuum of combat. There was still some attempt to launch, launch larger actions, though, like those against High Wood, but this was not the norm. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? 
the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? (laughs) I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. (laughs) Listen to the Ambi Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. As I have built up during this episode, and sort of during the last one, we are now at the point where the cavalry appear. With how maligned the cavalry arm is in the general evaluations of the history of the Great War, you may be surprised to learn that they were used here on the Somme, sort of the prototypical battlefield of the war. The men at the time in the battle were just as amazed. There are many accounts of men seeing the cavalry action and just being amazed that it was happening at all, not necessarily what actually happened during it. Even the most seasoned soldiers probably had not seen a cavalry action during the war, unless they'd been present way back during the few of them in 1914, but that was just a tiny, tiny fraction of the men that were still in the trenches in 1916. Here are just a few of these accounts, starting with British 2nd Lieutenant F.W. Beadle. Quote, it was an incredible sight, an unbelievable sight. They galloped up with their lances and their pennants flying up the slope of Highwood and straight into it. I've never seen anything like it. They simply galloped on through all that, and horses and men dropping on the ground. End quote. On the German side, it was just as incredible to see, if perhaps a bit more confusing. Quote, we could make out the heads of horses in a sunken road by the ruined mill, And through the binoculars, we could discern the riders. Was it new artillery coming up? A messenger was dispatched to the battalion headquarters. All of a sudden, several squadrons of British cavalry surged forward behind the mill in immaculately dressed lines. We had had seen nothing of the kind before, and a cavalry attack had never crossed our minds. End quote. The goal of this cavalry attack was to assist the infantry in the capture of Highwood, which was occupied by the Germans. Highwood had been a small wooded area behind the German front when the attack had begun. However, in the days before the attack, it had been hit pretty hard by artillery shells, as these wooded areas often were, which we'll talk more about here shortly. Whole trees had been uprooted, and there was just general levels of destruction all around. You may be wondering why the cavalry would be committed into this type of area. It certainly doesn't sound very horse-friendly, and, and well, it wasn't. 
In this case, the cavalry would try and use its best strength, though, its mobility, to move around the Germans in the wood to set up flanking positions that would then support the infantry attack that would move in to actually secure the wooded area itself. They actually fulfilled this goal quite well, and were able to maneuver some machine guns to the flanks in a way that no infantry unit ever would have been able to do, simply because of the speed that they could move around with. Then the mounted units, for the most part, dismounted and supported the infantry. Now, as you just heard, there were some people who would record seeing them ride into the wood itself, and this probably never actually happened. Maybe they rode under some of the outlying trees, but never actually into the wood on their horses. That would be really silly. It was not always entirely the case that they would just sit and watch the infantry do things, though. And in the action on July the 14th, there was a good old-fashioned cavalry charge by the troopers of the 7th Dragoons, which came around the eastern side of the woods and found that there was a German unit trying to retreat after being pushed out of their area of the woods. They then found themselves charged by the cavalry, and 48 Germans were made casualties during this action. After this charge, the cavalry then continued their advance until they met the 3rd German line, which was manned by intact positions and a good number of machine guns, at which point they had no option but to dismount again, dig into their positions, and wait to be relieved. While the cavalry had some casualties, it was not a complete disaster, and it really wasn't that much more than comparable infantry units. Although it did not greatly change the situation for the attack, it still proved its worth and showed its purpose. What this action really proved is that under the right circumstances, cavalry could exist on the battlefields of 1916. It could work pretty well, and it could be useful, even in an environment that some people would not have expected. Sure, it didn't create any kind of strategic breakthrough, where multiple cavalry divisions rode through the enemy lines and on to victory. But small tactical advantages could be gained by groups of men who could move quickly around the battlefield. Now, if you want to learn way more about the cavalry, and if you want to hear a full two-ish hours of my chronicle of the development and sort of a defense of their role during the war, head on over to Patreon at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar, where supporters get access to full four full episodes on this topic. Overall, the Battle of July 14th was a reasonable success. British casualties had been just over 9,000, and for that they had captured a good number of German positions on a decent stretch of front, while the Germans had lost around 4,000 men. Although, again, that number is a bit shaky for the same reasons we talked about uh, last episode. Several historians point to the greatly more concentrated artillery bombardment present for this attack as one of the primary reasons for its success, and there's definitely a lot of truth to that. But the British still did not know how to advance past the very specific zone controlled by the artillery, and that action probably was not even possible at this point in the war. And this meant that the sum had changed, and it would change, and all of the leaders would eventually come around on this as well, from a battle of breakthrough to one of strictly attritional struggle, just like Verdun, just like it's felt like everywhere in 1916. Men and equipment were simply fed into the waiting jaws of death and destruction from one way or another, and they were sent in one after another. 
The British, especially after July 14th, started to firmly believe that the German army was on the ropes. It could not possibly continue. For Haig and Rawlinson, this meant doubling down on continuing their attacks, with the belief that the next one would always do better. Now, you may be wondering, if you've listened to several episodes, how this was different than the Germans at Verdun, and the fact is that it isn't. They were thinking the same things. They thought they had the French on the ropes. They thought the next attack would do it. It's just the same mistake being made on another part of the front by the other side. The situation was certainly not ideal for the Germans, just like the French had for Dunn. But it was nowhere near as bad as the British thought. An example of this can be seen in the Bavarian Infantry Regiment 16, which we talked a little bit about before which had entered the battle with somewhere around 3,500 officers and men, you know, give or take. During the two weeks that it had been at the front, it had suffered 2,600 casualties. Now, Hauptmann Kellerman found himself in command of the entire regiment. Now, a rank of Hauptmann is roughly equivalent to that of a captain in Western armies, and was well down the list in terms of who would command a unit the size of a regiment, like way, way, way down the list. But on the 16th of July, he found himself in command, and he sent a message back to his commander, giving an overview of the situation in his unit, and asking for assistance in the very near-term future. So just listen to some of these numbers in these battalions that should have numbered around a thousand men altogether. Quote, After obstinately defending the position between Bazantine Lagrand and Longueval for the past 14 days, the regiment has more or less been wiped out during the course of yesterday. The current fighting strength is as follows. First battalion, one officer and 147 other ranks. Second battalion, six officers and 365 other ranks. Third battalion, one officer, 111 other ranks. Machine Gun Company, 21 other ranks. Machine Gun Troop 87, 14 other ranks. Machine Gun Troop 44, one officer, and 30 other ranks. I have neither received direction on how to proceed, nor do I expect any. From Headquarters 3rd Guard Infantry Division, I request instructions concerning reorganization and future tasking. End quote. Units like this uh, are often on the edge of complete disintegration. You're talking about a tenth or so of, of the men still capable of fighting and only a handful of officers. But this was not unique, especially for the German units at this point, which were not as much in a position to replace those at the front. While the general attack on the British side did not extend much beyond the 14th, there were other attacks that would continue past that date. Again, we're rolling into another period of these small tactical actions along the front. And an example of this is the struggle to try and capture Devil Wood, which quickly came to be called just Devil's Wood for obvious reason. I can barely say it without saying the word devil. This was just a small wooded area on the front, and it was given to the 9th Division, specifically the South African Brigade, and their objective was to try and take it and hold the wood, which quickly turned into a struggle that seemed to go on for eternity. On the 15th, most of the wood had been captured from the Germans, who had put up one hell of a fight. However, the next day, the counterattacks began. This went on day after day, 
And by July 18th, there had been 20,000 artillery rounds dropped on this little patch of woods. During this time, the South Africans had managed to hold off, for the most part, every German attack, even though each effort was met by fewer and fewer defenders. When the South Africans were finally taken off the line, shortly after the attacks on the 15th, they were down to just 785 men, having started out just a few days before with 3,000. They were relieved by the 53rd Brigade, but they found themselves in the same position as the men before them. The only difference was that they needed to figure out a way to also push the Germans from the areas that they had managed to recapture. The fighting for the 53rd would continue for four days, until the 21st of July, at which point another brigade was brought in, and so the Wheel of Time would continue to return ever onward, as unit after unit was sent in to be chewed up. The problem was that the wood was just too much of a tactical problem. Trying to capture it and hold it was basically impossible for either side, until there was a larger attack launched on both sides to try and capture some of the surrounding area. But until that could actually happen, unit after unit was sent forward, and they just sort of wasted away. There were a few other British actions on the front in July 1916, other than what was happening at the Somme. And one group that would make their Western Front debut for 1916 to the north of the Somme in one of these actions on July 19th would be the Australians. They were set to go forward in an attack 80 kilometers north of the Somme, in what would come to be called the Battle of Fromel. This attack was launched with the goal of testing the German front in this area, to see if they had drawn off a significant portion of their strength for the defense uh, on the Somme. If this was the case, then the British and the Australians of the 61st and 5th Division respectively would would have a pretty easy time trying to capture the first couple lines of German trenches at the foot of Auber's Ridge. When the Australians, while the Australians were well rested, well supplied, and of course ready to get on with it, as the Australians generally were at this point, the 61st Division was the exact opposite, heavily under strength and not prepared for the attack. In fact, the 61st Division had no business participating in any offensive action. They just were in no shape. Before the attack went forward on the 19th, there had already been two delays of its start date. There was even a good amount of discussion on whether it should happen at all. In the end, it did happen, and the Australians pushed forward and captured some German positions. However, the 61st Division was not able to accomplish very much at all. And this put the Australians in a really bad spot, and meant that they were destined to slowly be beaten back later in the day, during which they suffered horrible casualties. There was another attack planned for early in the evening on the 19th, but it was cancelled, but not in time to inform the Australian battalions, the 58th and 59th, that, and they began to go forward by themselves, with predictable results. I mean, we've seen this play out in other places before. The Australian division would lose over 5,000 casualties during the fighting, while the 61st, with only about half as many men, would lose just over 1,500. This would be just another example of Commonwealth troops, and for the first time Australians on the Western Front, feeling horribly let down by the British troops that they were working with. In this case, the concerns were legitimate, but the 61st was set up purely to fail, and never should have been in the attack to begin with. 
I hope you'll join me next episode as the Battle of the Somme continues.